Welcome to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. Ross Brannan is a financial advisor who knows it's not just about your teeth. He helps dental practice owners protect and maximize today's cash flow to plan for tomorrow's cash needs. Find him at rossbrannan.com. On the show, he brings together experts to help dental professionals looking to make smart money decisions to grow their income, turn their retirement goals into reality, and improve their lives. And now, here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the show. Today, we have John Lederick of JW Practice Advisory, one of the best dental transaction experts in the country today. John, welcome to the show. How's it going, Ross? Excited to be here. Well, I'm glad you're taking time out of having your third kid to be on our show. For those of you don't who don't know, while we record this, his wife is due in like 48 hours, and she's allowing him to do this. So thank you to your wife. So, John, you've kind of been in the dental industry for a couple of decades, but in different avenues. Talk a little bit about how you got into dental transitions. Yeah, I mean, I was in banking prior. And so I spent a long time just helping dentists get into practice ownership. Um, I worked for a very large bank. I, I helped dentists buy dental practices, do startups. Um, I helped with negative amortization <laughs> um, oh. for, for dental startups, right? I was doing dental startups when it was like 13, 14%. Um, so, you know, it. Uh, I went from going that to, to helping dentists get out of practice ownership. Um, so it, it was a natural progression, right? Um, I had a lot of good contacts and, and here we are. I've been on my own for three, three years now, a little over three years now. You've only been out here for three years, but you've had tremendous success in three years. And there's a lot of big players with, with brand recognition out there. But, um, you know, based on your numbers and what you're closing and, and how you're helping people get deals done, your numbers rival theirs. And some would argue uh, they're better transactions. So what's been the secret to your success? I think I think it's just taking care of my clients, right? Like making sure that I represent my seller, right? Like I want them to get the best financial fit and I want them to find the best culture fit. And so at the end of the day, I want them to, to really set off into the sunset, whether it's partnering with a new DSO or whether it's selling the practice to an individual. I just want to hit every box on their checklist um, and I want them to make sure that I'm representing them 1000% and I'm not taking from somebody else. I'm not trying to retain their services through some other business that I also own. So I'm literally just their advocate to help them sell their practice. So you hit a couple of things there and I want to throw two or three things out at you that I've heard. Um, you know, first off, a lot of people, well, let me say this. There, there, there are M&A advisors or dental transition advisors, and then there's brokers. And I would say the transition advisors and the M&A advisors are at a higher level of expertise than the brokers. Um, I've seen former dentists all of a sudden become brokers because they think they can do it. And one thing I hear a lot is like, oh, well, the DSO will pay my fee. And that sounds good on paper, but it just means that you're really working for the DSO because you're just trying to basically get paid. 
in that regard. And I've seen so many people think they can do this by themselves, not realizing that private equity does this every day, all day. And this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and you will be taken advantage of if you do that. <laughs> and it, it's, it, I could go on, but just speak to those things that, you know, that there's this level of maybe, I don't know if ignorance is the right word, but it's the word I'm going to use of ignorance about dentists, kind of almost like the, um, they feel like they're going to do it. It's like a for sale by owner. Um, on a dental practice for five, 10, 15 million dollars. It's like, ah, it's like they're they're just they're well, they're so busy, right? Like they have all of their employees to take care of. They're still trying to take care of all of their patients. So for them, a lot of it is path of least resistance, right? Like, oh hey, my CPA called me and said this national DSO will be a great fit. I've done some transactions with them. Well, that's great. That's one company. There's 250 other companies that, that are out there, right? Um, and, and by the way, when you speak with, to their business development person, do you really think that they're going to get that aggressive from uh, a let's dig into the financials? Let's, let's find all your kids on payroll. Let's find your cash balance plan. Let's find all of this. They're not going to be that aggressive. They're going to look at your P&L and be like, well, when this guy came in from this person, we're going to look at the P&L, we're going to give him a price, we're going to bump it up over 100% of collections, make it look nice and shiny, and then we're going to take it to close and make a truckload of money on it. So without without like proper representation, a lot of dentists are taken advantage of, which is why we're talking today. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, what I've seen with dentists and physicians is and physicians are much worse than dentists, but it still applies to dentists. And so don't get offended, dentists. But you go to school for eight plus years, and then you think you know everything. And you don't know everything. You know a lot about one part of the body. And you don't know near as much as the dentist who's been out there for 30 years. And so you think you know everything about this. It's it's a little bit of, a, of arrogance, if you will. And then you get – sometimes people get cheap, and they don't want to pay – for good representation, realizing the value created by that representation is is enormous. Like, um, you know, right out of college, I was in real estate, and uh, I I like to say that ninety percent of real estate agents are worthless, but the ten percent who aren't are worth their weight in gold. It's probably the same with dental uh, M and A people. 90% of brokers are probably not that great. And 10% who are, 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 are fantastic. And they drive tremendous value in the transaction. Would that be a fair statement? Yes. There are times where I wish I would have charged more. <laughs> I, I, I could imagine. Well, and so you said something else about the fitting the right culture. I heard a story about somebody who was basically shopping their practice on Facebook because, you know, that's what professionals do. And um, they were told they couldn't get a certain multiple and they, they went out and got that multiple. But within 90 days of close, they walked away from their earnout because the culture was so bad. And when you factor in what their actual multiple was in that scenario, it was, you know, substantially less. And, I've heard stories like that. I'm sure there's plenty of them out there, but it's just the, I hate to beat up on people, but it's like, there's this hubris that people have 
They think they can do it themselves, and they just don't understand it's more complex than that. Well, they either think that they can do it themselves, or they've got a friend that works for the DSO, right? Or or their supply rep mentioned this particular company. Or, you know, there's everybody's got their own agenda, right? I've got an agenda. I want to make a nice fee off of your practice so that you can set sail and and know that you got a great deal. But, you know, I'm taking care of my family. This is what I do for a living. Like, this isn't this isn't my side role, which there's so many people that are out there that think that they can be a broker on the side. It's almost like ERC tax credits. In the in the in the in which I know there's a lot of dentists who've done the ERC thing. It's so much so the IRS just shut it down, but uh, for the rest of the year. But uh, it, it is fascinating. So, what do you see in the dental? In, in we're recording this in sept in mid September. So when this comes out, it's going to be probably sometime in October. But what do you see in the the dental market trends right now? Like. How are interest rates affecting things? I've heard both sides of the story. It's really slowing things down. It hasn't affected anything at all. What, what's going on in the market? So I think you have a few different types of buyers that are out there where it's affecting them. And it, it all really depends on their capital backing, if they're bank financed, um, whether they're private equity backed, and where they are in their private equity life cycle, right? Like, the ones that are bank financed, most of them are, are just not buying right now. Um, you know, when you take when you take millions of dollars and put it on a ten-year term principal and interest, that wipes out any cash flow. Um, so there, there's not a whole lot of that happening, unless of course they're on some sort of mes debt that they do interest-only financing, something like that. Um, then there's there's buyers that are private equity backed that are just kind of pausing, right? They're like, hey, cash is cheap. We're gonna work on organic growth right now. So they're they're putting in their sole focus, same store growth, um, maybe, maybe adding some multi-specialty. Um, and then you have the buyers that are out there that are have their private equity event coming up, right? So in the next 18 to 24 months, you have some private equity companies that have been in there for three and a half years. They got in right before COVID. Um, they hopefully crushed it during COVID. Um, and now they're looking to get out. Well, I think we all know that if there's dry powder left and we're getting close to the end of the cycle, they're really going to pay some bigger multiples. So I see I see some big players that are just not, not able to compete. Um, I see also some big players that are doing like 40% cash at close, which is terrible. Um, and then what, I see... What I, I typically see 60%. Is that normal? I, tr- I strive for somewhere in the 60 to 70% range. Um, that's where I feel like you can get some some big valuations, bigger valuations. Uh, once you start getting up to 80%, then that's too much cash at close. And then once you start getting like less than 60%, I, I just don't feel like that that's that's a good number. So some of them are like 40%. Per- I've, seen, I've seen a lot come across that are like 40% these days. And I think that that's insane. So what are DSOs looking for? What what is like their what's their sweet spot? I mean what, what talk about like what people really need to have to make this a a lucrative transaction. Yeah, I mean, I get calls all week 
and I can pretty much tell a DSO what they want. <laughs> they all say we want at least one and a half million collections. They would love multi multiple doctors, multiple locations, um, even a north of 300,000, three to 500,000. Um, and of course, once you go up from 500,000, then like it makes it very appetizing. But then I, I also feel like in the same scope, we go up over 500,000, that weeds out a lot of a lot of the smaller players, right? So then you get into more of the small, the mid-sized groups, um, the 30, 40, 50 locations. And those are the ones that are going to really get tip, what I typically see aggressive as long as they're in their, towards the end of their private equity life cycle, right? And I think a lot of it really hinges on that private equity life cycle is, is is the company really trying to throw as much even as they possibly can before they get ready to exit um, or maybe it's they were the last private equity, private equity company worked on stability within the organization now new private equity is coming in and now they they're ready to to do some m a and start going gang, gang gangbusters yeah that's that's interesting you know i I, 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 I feel like that that's that's going to be Right. We all in the MA world, we got spoiled with cheap money, free money, right? Everyone so, and everybody in the United States got spoiled with cheap money. So now we're getting back to interest rates being normal, right? So everyone's going to realize that money's never going to be free again. We're getting back to normal. So we're going to get back into these, these, these three to five year cycles. Companies either just getting fresh powder, so now they're anxious to grow, or companies that are getting ready to, to throw even into their bottom line for a private equity exit, and then the ones in the middle that are really working on organic growth. So every every year we're going to have new hungry players to the table that are different than they were last year, and and that's where it takes a good advisor to know like who's going to do. Who's going to have a good transaction or a great transaction or pay a great multiple this year as opposed to next year or last year? How do you match the culture of a DSO with the culture for one of your uh, clients? A lot of it's a lot of it's personal and and just trying to figure out what they want, right? Do they want operational help? Do they are they tired of having HR conversations? Like, what are their internal needs? And, and that's where I feel like when we get into the interviews of buyer-seller interviews, that's when everything really gets flushed out. And I feel like that that's when buyers and sellers start building rapport, building relationship. Um, they figure out what the needs of one seller from the seller. They figure out how that they can help those needs. So it's, it's really a, a, a pretty, I'd say, hands-on process of trying to figure out the wants and needs of both sides. Um, is it better to take a less lucrative deal financially to get a better culture fit? Like for example, company a, DSOA has a better culture, but they're offering me 10% less money versus DSOB doesn't have a great culture, but they're offering me 10% more money. What's Which one's better? So... I typically try and use the bad culture to drive up the good culture deals <laughs> um, from a negotiating standpoint. 
But also at the same time, it pays to not be short-sighted, right? Like you have to have the right advisor to tell you, I've sold many companies or I've sold many practices to the number two and number three bidder because they had better culture, because the good culture companies will have a better runway and a better upside long run, right? So just because it's a, a $9.5 million deal instead of a $10 million deal, right? The nine and a half, you might be able to make up that $500,000 pretty easily. And I always tell doctors, look, that $500,000 grand scheme of things next year, you're in this for the next 10 years. Would you want $50,000 a year? (laughs) Would you sacrifice that to make sure that you're working with a company that you enjoy work every day? And most of them say yes, all day, every day. Um, and, and all of these deals, they're all like over the course of the next 10, 15 years, they're all going to be within striking distance and none of them are going to have much of a monetary impact on the actual selling dentist. So it, it behooves them to find the best culture company to make sure that they're, they're taking care of their patients, they're, they're taking care of their team, because those are the, those are the people that are staying post-transition. <laughs> How do you evaluate the realistic number? The the real how do you evaluate how realistic the projections are on the back end equity roll up? I typically divide everything by two on what they're quoting. Um, so if they're if they're quoting a forex return on invested capital over the next five years, I tell the doctor, I'm like, okay, well, what if it's just two x? It's hard. I mean, that's something that's hard to evaluate, right? Like you take a 30 to 40 location group. Clearly, this is the first time that they're trying to take 30, 30 or 30 locations to 80 locations. So it's, it's going to be hard. You, you almost have to take a look at the private equity company and, and look at the history of the companies that they've worked with. But it's it's pretty tough to, to really judge that. There's been times where I've probably ignorantly, but I felt like it was appropriate call it unicorn and fairy dust numbers. I mean, just because, I mean, the, and because no dentist can actually evaluate how real that projection is. And yeah, and, and that's where you really have to get like, so like I have a, a gentleman has practiced at 6 million. We sold, we transacted for 14 million. He took 10 million up front, rolled and rolled 4 million worth of, in, in equity. He was 40 years old. So like- How old? He was how old? 40. 40. So- you take the 10 million and what can that do over the next 20 years? You would be able to speak more to that. Um, you take the 4 million and if it, if it doubles every five years, you know, you're looking at some exorbitant number. So even if you get to some sort of fraction of that, like half of that, right? It's still much greater than if he made a million bucks a year, worked that with that practice for the next 20 years, you can only grow a six a six million dollar practice so much. So he uh, he came back to me and said, John, it's it's kind of a disservice to my family if I don't do this transaction now, because the game the the, the ten million sets the stage for you know ten turns into twenty, twenty turns into forty before he's retired. Now, granted, there's there's taxes that come off the top of that, right? So. 10 is more like six, six turns into 12, 12 turns into 24. But how can you turn a $6 million practice into a $24 million practice? That's a really good point. Now, here's a question for you. Like, I am vehemently anti-retirement. And, you know, 
I know guys in their mid thirties have sold their practice. And I'm like, and if you want to take your chips off the table, that's fine. I totally get that. But I tell people, you know, and I, I've notoriously told one story on this podcast and, and this, and the person listens to the podcast and they always text me when they hear it. So I won't, I won't bring it up again, but I know guys in their mid thirties and I'm like, you have to have a plan post exit. Now, granted, you're going to have a three to five year earnout. And it's hard for me to see most people staying beyond their earnout, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. Um, do you talk to people about, hey, what is your next plan in life? Because playing golf and traveling aren't it, and there's only so much. I mean, uh, you, you have to have people where we were wired, created for purpose. You have to have a purpose, and retirement is not a purpose. So do you talk to people about that at all? Is that is that one way of fishing out whether they're a good candidate to sell? Yeah, most most have some sort of other business that really, like, they really want to do right we all have what we do for work and then there's what we think a a fun business would be to own right so or some of them like the idea of consulting or some of them want to know hey is there going to be some sort of uh, maybe like a clinical director role where i could oversee multiple doctors or i do implants really well but like is there a way for me to teach that so they all have some sort of aspirations in addition to the daily grind um so yeah i I definitely try try to flush that out a lot have real estate ambitions and right what what better what better way to to grow your real estate portfolio than to get your hands on a nice lump sum of cash that's true what are some things that dentists who maybe whether they don't have representation or maybe they don't have great representation uh, fall prey to that really they should, they should, they need to make sure they avoid. I mean, it would be nice if they had somebody other than their CPA, no offense to CPAs that are out there, do an EBITDA calculation. Or maybe actually hire an attorney to read the contract, not have the CPA read the contract. (laughs) So it's very easy to just send your financials in and say, "What's your price? What are you gonna What are you gonna price this at?" And then they send profit and loss statements or trailing twelve month profit and loss statements. And if all you're doing is sending a profit and loss statement in, I can guarantee you that that valuation is not going to be precise. You need to dig into the general ledger, right? There are transactions behind salaries and wages. What if what if your three kids are on there? There's something in addition to the dental supplies, right? Why was why was there a $15,000 transaction with Henry Schein that is greater than all your other two and $3,000 transactions? So if you're not getting into the actual general ledger and detail of every single financial transaction that happens within your practice, you don't know what your practice is worth. So if you're only submitting P&Ls, and I guarantee you every single DSO in the country is just asking for profit and loss statements and not asking for a general ledger. Yeah, I mean, just- even, even some brokers, right? Some brokers, some brokers are just looking at tax returns. It, 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 seem, it just seems to me that some people take the easy way out because a it's easy it's more convenient 
and they don't really want to put the work in to sell a practice because selling a practice is work. And if they do that, it's going to cost them hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars doing it that way. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I've talked to I've talked to some dentists, and, and what everybody has to realize there's there's two definitions of EBITDA, right? It's it depends on whether you're the owner dentist or whether you're a buying investor. Have you ever heard Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's uh, take on EBITDA? <laughs> no. If you Google it on YouTube, look it up on YouTube. Uh, okay. It, it's fun. They they think it's about as use as useful as a pile of dog crap. Uh, so but anyway go on yeah no it's it's an opinion um yeah. right like my even my it's not a generally accepted accounting principle right exactly um and so an owner dentist and per- perfect example the the uh, gentleman that i sold his practice for 14 million he comes to me and he's like john i think my practice i get like a two million dollar even like Okay, great. Two million dollars. I can sell you for eighteen to 20, 20 million bucks. And he's like, "Okay, let's go." <laughs> um, we do the analysis, and his CPA didn't pay himself. Uh, didn't pay the doctor for the two million dollars and one point five million dollars in dentistry that he actually produced. So, on a move forward basis, he needs he needs he'll have four to five or just six hundred thousand dollars of salary that he's got to pay himself that the DSO has to pay him. Um, so the EBITDA should out to be more like 1.5 million as opposed to $2 million. Ouch. Um, and that's where, you know, I, I don't mean to beat up CPAs, but like, are they, are they doing the EBITDA for you personally? Or are they doing the EBITDA for a non-producing dentist to come in and buy your practice? Because those two EBITDAs are completely different. What What is a... Two questions. What is a multiple realistic realistic multiple in the market today? And can DSOs fudge the multiple, fudge the numbers to make the multiple look high, but the deal look smaller? Did the deal actually be less lucrative? Yeah. So once once you go, once you submit numbers, and and you know, we have to be careful about beating up DSOs too much because they actually buy a lot of practices from me. No, I'm not <laughs> I, I'm not trying to beat up a DSO. It's just that. They are experienced business people and dentists typically are not. And a buyer always wants to get the best price. A seller always wants to get the best price. It would just be, it would seem that the seller. No, yeah, there's. They're an untrained person walking into a UFC cage to fight a UFC. (laughs) Uh, And I don't know the next time. So these are fair um, fight, if you will. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors that's out there, right? So um, you go onto any dental industry advertising forum, and you can single location. You should be getting a seven X. You should be getting a, a an eleven X if you have this many locations. Um, everywhere you go, they're just throwing out multiples, and nobody knows what their actual multiple should be. So you're right. It's very easy for me to say, okay, here's my financials. I spend zero dollars in marketing. Okay, well, then they're gonna make a two to three percent marketing adjustment and ding your EBITDA for that. And then they're gonna make some maybe some salary wages, right? I talked with one DSO that 
thought that the dentists were underpaid. So they made a three to 4% uh, salary adjustment. So it brings the EBITDA down considerably, right? Like, so just those two instances, maybe that's 5%. So you take the EBITDA down 5%, bump up the multiple so the optics on it looks good. Oh, you're a single location. We typically do three to a 5X or four to a 6X on a single location. We'll put you in at a 6X because we really like you. And you came in through Dr. Smith that is also a doctor here. So like makes the doctor feeling good. Oh, and by the way, you're gonna be over 100% of collections. So you'll save a lot of money on the broker fee too. And we're already paying you over 100% of collections. So like all of that is being said and they manipulate the numbers to make, a, to make the optics look good. So that, that happens all the time. Wow. And there is no hard and fast rule of if you this is your situation, you should get 6x, this person should get 8x, this person should get 10x. It's 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 really facts and circumstance dependent, correct? Yeah, I mean it's it's you gotta bring multiple people to the table to see what the market bears, right? right. Um how do you know what how do you know what your home's gonna sell for just by calling up a real estate agent and say, hey, what's my home gonna sell for? They don't know until you actually go to market. Um, and I've got multiple scenarios where there's big multiples have come in and people come in with, like I had one doctor, 3.3 million in collections, had a $6 million offer on the table. And they asked me, okay, well, what do you think of this offer? Like, well, the optics look good, right? Like it's, it's almost 200% of collections. It looks like a good deal, but I haven't looked at the numbers, so I really can't tell you. We ended up digging into the numbers and I thought that it would actually go to market for eight and a half to 9 million. We created a competitive marketplace, really juiced up EBITDA by finding a cash balance plan, stuff that was really, you had to really dig deep to, to find it. And we ended up transacting for ten million dollars. That this is this is one of those <laughs> this is one of those deals that I wish I, I would have charged more. <laughs> I could have said, "Hey, I'll charge you twenty five percent of the increase from six million dollars." Will you do it? And I would have, or thirty percent, or thirty five percent, and I would have made out very well. But instead, I, I charged my normal fee. <laughs> wow. But but that 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 doctor like almost doubled a really good value. Oh, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. So as we wind down, what last bit of advice would you give to someone considering selling? Um, talk with somebody that knows how to do then that will you know when you're interviewing people to do an EBITDA calculation ask them what they want, get their, get their request list from them. And if it doesn't include a general ledger, walk away and go to somebody else. Um, every, every request list that we send out, we ask for the general ledger and it is so that we can find some of the big, there's only so much you can buy within your practice at Costco. There's only so many Amazon purchases that you can buy. There's only so much gas that you, that your practice needs. So when you're when you're looking at hiring an advisor or hiring somebody to calculate your EBITDA, make sure that they're asking for more than just P&Ls and tax returns. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So how do people get in touch with it, in touch with you if they want to talk to you? 
Um, you can email me, john at jw.dental. You can call me, 617-939-8292. Go to the website, fill out a form. Google All right, me. so the website is jw.dental. Yep. The email, which is on the website, is john at jw.dental. The phone number on the website is 617-753-6458. Is that your cell phone? That is our company line. So okay. you can you can call that one or you can call myself. And what's your cell phone number? 617-939-8292. Say it one more time. 617-939-8292. Fantastic, John. This has been great. I think it's been really educational for, the, for our listeners. Thanks so much for coming on. Awesome. Thank you, Ross. Greatly appreciate it. You've been listening to the Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brannan. This has been another episode of Financial Flossing with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. If you liked what you heard, consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. For more on Ross Brannan, visit rossbrannan.com. Ross Brandon is a registered representative of Coastal Equities, Inc., and investment advisory representative of Coastal Investment Advisors, Inc. Investment advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors, Inc., and securities are offered through Coastal Equities, Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC, 1201 North Orange Street, Suite 729, Wilmington, Delaware, 19801. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.